Have you ever been filling out a form and thought, I don't know which box to pick because there's no box that really fits? Sometimes there's a box marked other, but that's significant in its own right, don't you think? Humans seem to want to put other people in boxes, but nobody likes being put in a box themselves. Finding a place where we feel at home enough to be everything we are can be a life's work in itself. Our bodies pass through the space of other people's stories all the time. We asked 10 writers to think of a place within the city of Berkeley where something meaningful or memorable happened to them, and then to write a story inspired by that place. Some are fact, some are fiction, and some live somewhere in between. I'm Madeline Oldham, dramaturg and co-sound designer. This week on Berkeley Rep's Place Settings, we bring you a story of one woman's pursuit of space to let the unique blend of seeds that make up her identity, her environment, and her culture take root. Inspired by memories of the bygone Franklin School, West Berkeley, West Indian by Aya de Leon, read by the author. When I was a kid in Berkeley in the mid-70s, West Side Chinese kids used to affectionately call each other nigger. We didn't have rap music or videos then. This was a term you would never, ever hear on TV. Nigger was an American term, picked up by children of immigrants who were learning to assimilate to their surroundings. Back then, West Berkeley was colored and poor, full of liquor stores and adult video shops. Sex workers strolled up and down San Pablo Avenue from Oakland through Berkeley toward Richmond. Back then, the Berkeley Unified Schools had been desegregated only about 10 years, but Chinese kids, whose poor and working-class parents spoke Cantonese, lived in hood parts of town and learned Black English and went to West Side Elementary Schools like Franklin at the corner of Virginia and San Pablo, which served 4th through 6th graders. I grew up in West Berkeley, not deep West, so I would never, ever use the word nigger towards anyone in love or hate, but I too learned to assimilate into American Black culture, but not until college. In Berkeley in the 70s, you were either Black, Mexican, Chinese, or white. If you were some other Latinx or Asian, too bad. You would be forever called Mexican or Chinese. I was black and looked black, and everyone expected me to be African-American, but my mother was Puerto Rican, and my dad was black and West Indian, but he wasn't around anyway, so everything about me was culturally Caribbean and Latina, except I didn't speak Spanish very well. But that wouldn't have mattered because I was way too black for the Mexicans anyway. And my mom was too white-looking. Black people also thought she was white, that I was a mixed girl with a white mama, but I wasn't. It was at Franklin School that a black sixth grade girl walked up to my mother at the window of our old brown Volvo station wagon. My mother had pulled the car forward to pick me up after school, and this black girl ran up to the car and slapped my allegedly white mother and ranted about how my hair was ugly and why didn't my allegedly white mother fix my hair right. That day, I learned that black people take a strong interest in each other's hair, but because my mother was a ceramic artist, she spent her mornings making art, not making sure her daughter's hair was in neat braids. My mother was a feminist, 
Though she didn't use the word then, she wasn't really that concerned with my appearance at nine years old. So I had a lopsided afro, and this girl was incensed, which is probably why I grew up to be a mom who wakes up in the morning and spends my time making literary art, but always takes time to braid my daughter's hair, especially if we are going to be around black people who will take an interest, because black girls with the wrong hair end up with all white friends. And that goes okay in grade school, but the older you get, the harder that gets until maybe you are like me in college and you are no longer in Berkeley where white people are trying so hard not to be racist. You are in Boston at Harvard where people are perfectly happy being racist where the working class townies have recently rioted against school integration and the affluent university has a 350 year history of being racist that has paid off well. And you may find yourself dancing at Harvard's 350th anniversary celebration, wearing a blouse you rigged up with safety pins out of a silk scarf and a curtain tie, along with a skirt from a thrift store when you hear the rumor that Harvard is the second richest institution in the world second only to the Vatican. And while you are a student there, Harvard has only been integrated for 15 years. But while Berkeley desegregated voluntarily, Harvard had a huge strike and resisted student demands for equity more staunchly than any of the other Ivy League schools. For example, they established an African-American studies department, but during your time there in the mid 80s, the department chairman is white. And suddenly in college, you need to depend on black people for safety, sanity, community. You live in a landscape that is frozen for a third of your school year, and you are trapped inside with these white people and their hostility. And in the dead of winter in your sophomore year, one of these white girls slaps you in the face and everyone takes her side. And suddenly you are desperately trying to have the right hair for the black people to take an interest in because there is no hope for you with the Puerto Ricans since you don't speak Spanish right and you won't survive here without a tribe. I might as well have been speaking Cantonese when I got to Harvard because nothing about me made sense to those black students. With my groovy, hippie, lefty, multi-culti Berkeley self, it was a steep learning curve. Even without the word nigga, there were dances to figure out and song lyrics to memorize and books to read and pop quizzes every day administered by real Black students who were taking an interest in making sure I was assimilating all the material and mastering the craft. Most challenging for me were the always unspoken yet never-ending rules to understand about greeting people and matching your clothing and fixing your hair, and I mean fixing, because something is definitely wrong with it, and other confusing customs. Blackness was a college within a college where I got schooled and often flunked all my classes. Finally, I decided to major in Afrocentricity, being that I could match the all-black clothes with the red, black, and green flags because my unpressed hair was always in style and any outfit could be accessorized with tiny continents of Africa or heads of Nefertiti. And this strategy worked pretty well, except for the fact that I was mostly Caribbean and that really wasn't part of the fashion statement. 
but I could read the right books and say the blackety black thing. And I didn't mind pissing white people off because no, my mother wasn't white. She was Puerto Rican. And at Franklin School, I had learned that if you can't figure out how to connect with black people, you can just lash out at whiteness. And that works too. I might as well have been back at Franklin School, might as well have been Michael or Darren Fong playing dodgeball with Marcus Jones and Lavelle Jackson and calling each other nigger because just like nigger has nothing to do with whatever part of China their folks came from, this rigid set of United States Negro customs I learned had nothing to do with St. Kitts or Puerto Rico or who I really was. In my 20s, I would learn new ways to be Black. I would join community groups like Free My People in Roxbury and the self-affirming, soul-healing Africans in Oakland and Black liberation and community development, as well as Puerto Rican liberation in the International Reevaluation Counseling Organization. I would spend years crying and raging about racism and emerge with a clear sense of loving Black people, loving my own Blackness, in wholeness as an Afro-Latina, and that I'm completely Puerto Rican, even with my faulty Spanish, and that there is nothing wrong with me or any of us, only the effects of racism and colonization, which rage on. These days, Berkeley's Black population keeps dwindling. I still live in West Berkeley, in a different house from the one I grew up in. There are no other Black families in our neighborhood, and no liquor stores. I married a mixed-heritage West Indian man, and our daughter speaks Spanish and has been learning to dance Puerto Rican bomba at La Peña across town. Nowadays, there are more things to be than Black, White, Mexican, and Chinese, and my daughter is just about all of them. She goes to Berkeley Public Schools, where the gentrification is so heavy that some elementary campuses have kindergarten classes with no Black children at all. Franklin School is gone. For decades, half the campus has been affordable housing. The other half was the Berkeley Adult School. There are still poor people moving into West Berkeley. They live in tent cities by the freeway, while new buildings go up every day that even a middle-class family couldn't afford. I miss the Berkeley of my childhood, where poor Chinese kids who grew up around poor Black kids learned that the word nigga meant person or friend, where nigga was a private word that white people weren't rapping along to under their breath, and white nationalism wasn't rising where Berkeley was leading the nation in desegregation, not gentrification. As a senior at Berkeley High, I got waitlisted when I applied to UC Berkeley, but now I teach in the African-American Studies Department, where the chairperson is reliably Black. From the university to the Bay, I know this town. I can visualize just about every corner in the flatlands, and I know nearly all of the trails in Tilden. I buy most of my food at the farmer's markets and the rest at the Berkeley Bowl. Still, I miss the old Berkeley. I miss the pier. I miss Iceland. But Berkeley is home. There is one Asian family in an apartment building in my neighborhood, and I love them. Although we can't communicate very well because they don't speak English. 
before the pandemic, the older women of the family used to come and ask if they could dig out our bamboo shoots to eat. One of the other grandmas still digs bottles out of the recycling and puts them in her cart while her little black dog barks at everyone. The truck in front of their building is always filled with cardboard. Maybe the younger generations grow up and assimilate, but maybe not. The family owns the apartment building, and I hope they never leave. They remind me of Berkeley in the 70s. Unassimilated, international, real. The story was written and read by Aya de Leon, an acclaimed author of poetry and prose who teaches creative writing at UC Berkeley. Her fourth book, Side Chick Nation, was the first novel published about Hurricane Maria. Her latest novel is A Spy in the Struggle. Berkeley Rep thanks our Rep on Air sponsor, the Bernard Osher Foundation, and our place-setting sponsor, Berkeley Side. And we are very, very grateful to our Berkeley Rep season sponsors, Bruce Golden and Michelle Mercer, Francis Hellman and Warren Breslau. Jack and Betty Schaefer, the Strauch-Kulhangian family, Bart, and Pete's Coffee for their generous support. This series is produced by Berkeley Repertory Theater. Sound design by Lane Elms and Madeline Oldham. Our theme music is by Buen Aurelio Malazar. You can find him on Bandcamp. Join us next week for a story by Philip Kahn Gotanda. 